Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of Renegade Troy Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group's about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's real, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about, you know? In-laws. <clears throat> RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done, except for this week where I'm reading a book. And I pick their brain for entertainment and education. If you enjoy this podcast, um, I need some help, man. Hook a brother up, right? If you haven't already, go rate and review on iTunes, okay? Um, you do it. If you're doing it from the iTunes app on your phone, you actually have to to search it. You just can't go to where you, you listen to the podcast. I know, man, I didn't make this shit up. You know, as smart as they are, you figure they make it a little easier, but uh, they didn't. Uh, also, I have some important news. Um, as of sometime on Monday, I think about halfway through the day on Monday, uh, the Renegade Joint Investor podcast surpassed 20,000 plays. So thank you. Um, thank you a lot. Just to give you an idea, it took, the, it took one year to get the first 10,000 plays. And in the last month, it, or in the last four months, we got another 10,000. So we cut it by a third. So obviously, you guys are sharing, and you are putting it out there. And to everybody who's doing that, thank you. For everybody who rated review on iTunes, thank you. It's a lot of work, and I really appreciate it, and I couldn't do it without you. All right? If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You should go like that page anyway. I post a lot of content there. It's cool st- cool stuff, man. You can go on, uh, hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on uh, Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And you can always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right, legal disclaimer, man, don't blame me. You just don't. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say be taken as legal ad nor investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals and maybe put on your big boy or big girl pants. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the show quote of the week where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and uh, hopefully our weekend in the spirit of the current series we're doing. I pulled it right out of the, the one thing by Gary Keller. Quote, we are kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. Robert Brault. Hope I said that right. We are kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. All right. Last week, we read chapters 1 uh, through 15. Not 15, 1 through 5. What the hell am I saying? And uh It was about an hour and 20 minutes, hour and 30 minutes, and we're going to do the same thing. This is part two, okay? So, um, what about, how's this working for you guys? Did you like it? What do you think? Um, I did get some feedback online that some people were interested, so um, I'm having a good time doing it, and and hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll read better, too. You know what I'm saying? So, let's just dive right in. So, we finished last week... At the end of chapter five, um, on page 53. So we're starting right now. We're reading The One Thing by Gary Keller. All right. We're starting on chapter six, page 54, if you're following along. All right. You guys ready? A disciplined life 
There is this pervasive idea that the successful person is the disciplined person who leads a disciplined life. It's a lie. The truth is we don't need any more discipline than we already have. We just need to direct and manage it a little better. Contrary to what most people believe, success is not a marathon of a disciplined action. Achievement doesn't require you to be a full-time disciplined person where your every action is trained and where control is the solution to every situation. Success is actually a short race, a sprint fueled by discipline just long enough for habit to kick in and take over. When you know something that needs to be done but isn't currently done, we often say, I just need, I just need more discipline. Actually, we need the habit of doing it, and we need just enough discipline to build the habit. In any discussion about success, the words discipline and habit ultimately intersect. Through separate and though separate in meaning, they powerfully connect to form the foundation for achievement, regularly working at something until it regularly works for you. When you discipline yourself, you're essentially training yourself to act in a specific way. Stay with this long enough and it becomes routine. In other words, a habit. So when you see people who look like disciplined people, what you're really saying is people who've trained a handful of habits into their lives. This makes them seem disciplined when they're actually not. No one is. And who'd want to be anyway? The very thought of having your every behavior molded and maintained by training seems frighteningly impossible on one hand and utterly boring on the other. Most people ultimately reach this conclusion, but seeing no alternative, redouble their efforts at the impossible or quietly quit. Frustration shows up and resignation eventually sets in. You do not need to be a disciplined person to be successful. In fact, you can become successful with less discipline, less discipline than you think for one simple reason. Success is about doing the right thing, not about doing everything right. Ooh. How many of you are off the book? How many of you have done that? I feel like that was directed right at me. <laughs> Damn you, he knows. He's been watching me, Gary, and uh, he knows exactly what I'm thinking. Back to the book. The trick to success is to choose the right habit and bring just enough discipline to establish it. That's it. That's all the discipline you need. As the habit becomes part of your life, you'll start looking like a disciplined person, but you won't be one. What you will be is someone who has something regularly working for you because you regularly worked on it. You'll be a person who used success, who selected discipline to build a powerful habit. Selected discipline works swimmingly. I don't know who came up with this stuff. Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps is a case study of selected discipline. When he was diagnosed with ADHD as a child, his kindergarten teacher told his mother, Michael can't sit still. Michael can't be quiet. He's not gifted. Your son will never be able to focus on anything. Bob Bowman, his coach since age 11, reports that Michael spent a lot of time on the side of the pool by the lifeguard stand for disruptive behavior. That same misbehavior has cropped up from time to time in his adult life as well. Yet, he set dozens of world records. In 2004, he won six gold and two bronze medals uh, in Athens. And then in 2008, a record eight in Beijing surpassed by the legendary, or surpassing the legendary Mark Spitz. His 18 gold medals, and by the way, I have to book, I think it's something fucking ridiculous now, right? Because uh, obviously this book's a little dated. He has even more. I think he's like at 23 or 24. Um, set a record for Olympians in any sport. Before he hung up his goggles in retirement, his wins at the 2012 London Olympic Games brought his total medal count to 22 and earned him the status of most decorated Olympian in any sport in history. Talking about Phelps, one reporter said, if he were a country, he'd be ranked 12th over the last three Olympics. 
Today's mom reports, Michael's ability to focus amazes me. Bowman calls it his strongest attribute. How did this happen? How did a boy who was never able to focus on anything achieve so much? Phelps became a person of selected discipline. From the age of 14 through the Beijing Olympics, Phelps trained seven days a week, 365 days a year. He figured that by training on Sundays, he got a 52 training day advantage on the competition. He spent up to six hours in the water each day. Channeling his energy is one of his greatest strengths, said Bowman. Not to oversimplify, but it's not a stretch to say that Phelps channeled all of his energy into one discipline that developed into one habit, swimming daily. The payoff from developing the right habit is pretty obvious. It gets you the success you're searching for. What sometimes gets overlooked, however, is an amazing windfall. It also simplifies your life. Your life gets clearer and less complicated because you know what you have to do well and you know what you don't. The fact of the matter is that aiming discipline at the right habit gives you license to be less disciplined in other areas. When you do the right thing, it can liberate you from having to monitor everything. Ugh. Damn you. I'm underlining that. I did that last year. I started tracking everything. Never go full retard. Michael, back to the book. Michael Phelps found his sweet spot in the swimming pool. Over time, finding the discipline to do this formed the habit that changed his life. 66 days to the sweet spot. Discipline and habit. Honestly, Honestly, most people never really want to talk about these. And who can blame them? I don't either. The images these words conjure in our heads are something hard and unpleasant. Just reading the words is exhausting. But there's good news. The right discipline goes a long way, and habits are hard only in the beginning. Over time, the habit you're after becomes easier and easier to sustain. It's true. Habits require much less energy and effort to maintain than to begin. See figure seven. Put up with the discipline long enough to turn it into habit and the journey feels different. Lock in one habit so it becomes part of your life and you can effectively ride the routine with less wear and tear on yourself. The hard stuff becomes habit and habit makes the hard stuff easy. And figure seven is a uh, chart. It's a picture on the uh, vertical axis is discipline on the horizontal axis is time and it shows an exponential um, it goes right up. So, and there's like a little star. It says day 66 habit forms. So, all right, back to the book. So how long do you have to maintain discipline? Researchers at the University College of London have the answer. In 2009, they asked the question, how long does it take to establish a new habit? They were looking for the moment when a new behavior becomes automatic or ingrained. The point of automat automaticity, hope I said that right, Came when participants were 95% through the power curve and the effort needed to sustain it was about as low as it could get. They asked students to take on exercise and diet calls for a period of time and monitor their progress. The results suggest that it takes an average of 66 days to acquire a new habit. The full range was 18 to 254, but the 66 days represented a sweet spot with easier behaviors taking fewer days on average and tough ones taking longer. Self-help circles tend to preach that it takes 21 days to make a change, but modern science doesn't back that up. It takes time to develop the right habits, so don't give up too soon. Decide what the right one is, and then give yourself all the time you need and play all the discipline you can to develop it. You can summon to develop it. Australian researchers Megan Oten and Ken Chang have 
even found some evidence of a halo effect around habit creation. In their studies, students who successfully acquired one positive habit reported less stress, less impulsive spending, better dietary habits, decreased alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine consumption, fewer hours watching TV, and even fewer dirty dishes. Sustain the discipline long enough on one habit, and not only does it become easier, but so do other things as well. It's why those with the right habits seem to do better than others. They're doing the most important things regularly, and as a result, everything else is easier. Whoo! Big ideas. Number one, don't be a disciplined person. Be a person of powerful habits and use selected discipline to develop them. Number two, build one habit at a time. Success is sequential, not simultaneous. No one, at, no one actually has the discipline to acquire more than one powerful new habit at a time. Man, I'm always trying to fucking outdo myself. Sorry, I'm tired this week. I'm not trying to swear too much. Joe, I apologize, Joe. Joe Deal is telling me to swear less. He's trying to make me a better person. I'm trying not to resist as much. No one actually has the discipline to acquire more than one powerful new habit at a time. So all those 16 things you want to do, you can do them all at once. Back to the book. Super successful people aren't superhuman at all. They've just used selected discipline to develop a few significant habits, one at a time, over time. Number three, give each habit enough time. Stick with the discipline long enough for it to become routine. Habits, on average, take 66 days to form. Once a habit is solidly established, you can either build on that habit or, if appropriate, build another one. If you are what you repeatedly do, then achievement isn't an action you take, but a habit you forge into your life. I like that. If you, I got, I like, I like the word forge. Feels like I can do it. Feels manly as shit too, you know. Forge into your life. I need coal for it. Makes me happy. Back to the book. You don't have to seek out success. Harness the power of selected discipline to build the right habit, and extraordinary results will find you. I hope so. You ready to forge on to the next chapter? Chapter seven. Willpower is always on. Will call. Why would you ever do something the hard way? Why would you ever knowingly get behind the eight ball, deliberately crawl between a rock and a hard place, or intentionally work with one hand tied behind your back? You wouldn't, but most people unwittingly do every day. When we tie our success to our willpower without understanding what that really means, we set ourselves up for failure, and we don't have to. Often quoted as a statement about sheer determination, the old English proverb, where there's a will, there's a way, has probably misled as many as it's helped. It just rolls off the tongue and passes so quickly through our head that, if, that few stop to hear its full meaning. Widely regarded as a singular source of personal strength, it gets misinterpreted as a cleverly phrased one-dimensional prescription for success. But for will to have its most powerful way, there's more to it than that. Construe willpower as just a call for character and you'll miss its other equally essential element, timing. It's a critical piece. For most of my life, I never gave willpower much thought. Once I did, it captivated me. The ability to control oneself to determine one's actions is a pretty powerful idea. Base it on training and it's called discipline. But do it because you simply can. That's raw power, the power of will. It seems so straightforward. Invoke my will and success was mine. I was on my way. Sadly, I didn't need to pack much for it was a short trip. 
As I set out to impose my will against defenseless goals, I quickly discovered something discouraging. I didn't always have the willpower. One moment I had it, the next poof, I didn't. One day it was AWOL, the next bang, it was at my beck and call. My willpower seemed to come and go as if it had a life of its own. Building success around full strength, on-demand willpower proved unsuccessful. My initial thought was, what's wrong with me? Was I a loser? Apparently so. Oh, man. How many times have you thought that? Why can I do this? Somebody else can do it. Why can't I do it? My initial thought was, what's wrong with me? Was I a loser? Apparently so. No. Back to the book. It seemed I had no grit, no strength of character, no inner fortitude. Consequently, I gutted it up bore down with determination, doubled my effort. Man, how many of you done that? Back to the book and reached a humbling conclusion. Willpower is an on-will call. As powerful as my motivation was, my willpower wasn't just sitting around waiting for my call, ready at any moment to enforce my will on anything I wanted. I was taken aback. I had always assumed there was that it would always be there, that I would simply access it whenever I wanted to get whatever I wanted. I was wrong. Willpower is always on will call is a lie. Willpower is always on will call is a lie. Most people assume willpower matters, but many might not fully appreciate how critical it is to our success. One highly unusual research project revealed just how important it really is. Toddler torture. In the late 60s and early 70s, researcher Walter Michel began methodically tormenting four-year-olds at Stanford University's Bing Nursery School. More than 500 children were volunteered for the diabolical program by their own parents, many of whom would later, like millions of others, laugh mercilessly at, mercilessly at videos of the squirming, miserable kids. The devilish experiment was called the marshmallow test. It was an interesting way to look at willpower. Kids were offered one of three treats, a pretzel, a cookie, or the now infamous marshmallow. The child was told that the researcher had to step away, and if he could wait 15 minutes until the researcher returned, he would be awarded a second treat. One treat now or two later. Michelle knew, Michelle, I don't know if I'm saying that right, M-I-S-C-H-E-L, knew they designed the test well when a few of the kids wanted to quit as soon as they explained the ground rules. Come on, kids. Uh, left alone with a marshmallow they couldn't eat, kids engaged in all kinds of delay strategies, from closing their eyes, pulling their own hair, and turning away, to hovering over, smelling, and even caressing their treats. On average, kids held out less than three minutes, and only three out of ten managed to delay their gratification until the researcher returned. It was pretty apparent most kids struggled with delayed gratification. Willpower was in short supply. Initially, no one assumed anything about what success or failure in the marshmallow test might say about a child's future. That insight came about organically. Michelle's three daughters attended Bing Nursery School, and over the next few years, he slowly began to see a pattern when he'd asked them about classmates who had participated in the experiment. Children who had successfully waited for the second treat seemed to be doing better, a lot better. Starting in 1981, Michel began systematically tracking down the original subjects. He requested transcripts, compiled records, and mailed questionnaires in an attempt to measure their relative academic and social progress. His hunch was correct. Willpower, or the ability to, ability to delay gratification, was a huge indicator of future success. Over the next 30-plus years, Michel, M-I-S, Michel, 
I don't know, and his colleagues published numerous papers on how high delayers fared better. Success in the experiment predicted higher general academic achievement. SAT test scores that were on average 210 points higher, higher feelings of self-worth, and better stress management. On the other hand, low delayers were 30% more likely to be overweight and later suffered higher rates of drug addiction. When your mother told you all good things come to those who wait, she wasn't kidding. Willpower is so important that using it effectively should be a high priority. Unfortunately, since it's not on will call, putting it to its best use requires you to manage it. Just as with the early bird gets the worm and make hay while the sun shines, willpower is a timing issue. When you have your will, you get your way. Although character is an essential element of willpower, the key to harnessing it is when you use it. Renewable energy. Thinking of willpower like the power bar on your cell phone. Every morning you start out with a full charge. As the day goes on, every time you draw on it, you're using it up. So as your green bar shrinks, so does your resolve. And when everything goes red, you're done. Willpower has a limited battery life, but can be recharged with some downtime. It's a limited but renewable resource. Because you have a limited supply, each act of will creates a win-lose scenario where winning in an immediate situation through willpower makes you more likely to lose later because you have less of it. Make it through a tough day in the trenches and the lure of late night snacking can be, become your diet's downfall. That never happens, right? <laughs> Everyone accepts that limited resources must be managed. Yet we fail to recognize that willpower is one of them. We act as though our supply of willpower were endless. Oh, it's like talking right to me. Is it not? Can I just do what I want all the time? Why won't you do what I say, brain? I'm highlighting that. Back to the book. As a result, we don't consider it a personal resource to be managed like food or sleep. This repeatedly puts us in a tight spot for when we need our willpower the most, it may not be there. Stanford University professor Baba Shiv's research shows just how fleeting our willpower can be. He divided 165 undergraduate students into two groups and asked them to memorize either a two-digit or a seven-digit number. Both tasks were well within the average person's cognitive abilities, and they could take as much time as they needed. When they were ready, students would then go to another room where they would recall the number. Along the way, they were offered a snack for participating in the study. The two choices were chocolate cake or a ball of fruit salad, guilty, pleasure, or healthy treat. Come on now. Is that even a choice? Here's the kicker. Students asked to memorize the seven-digit number were nearly twice as likely to choose cake. This tiny extra of cognitive load was just enough to prevent a prudent choice. The implications are staggering. The more we use our mind, the less minding power we have. Willpower is like a fast twitch muscle that gets tired and needs rest. It's incredibly powerful, but it has no endurance. As Kathleen Vose put it in Prevention Magazine in 2009, willpower is like gas in your car. When you resist something tempting, you use some up. The more you resist, the emptier your tank gets until you run out of gas. In fact, a measly five extra digits is all it takes to drain our willpower dry. While decisions tap our willpower, the food we eat is also a key player in our level of willpower. Food for thought. 
The brain makes up one-fiftieth of our body mass but consumes a staggering one-fifth of the calories we burn for energy. If your brain were a car, in terms of gas mileage, it'd be a Hummer. Most of our conscious activity is happening in our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain responsible for focus, handling short-term memory, solving problems, and moderating impulse control. It's at the heart of what makes human and the center for our executive control, makes us human and the center for our executive control and willpower. Here's an interesting fact. The last in first out theory is very much at work inside our head. The most recent parts of our brain to develop are the first to suffer if there is a shortage of resources. Older, more developed areas of our brain, such as those that regulate breathing and our nervous responses, get first helpings from our bloodstream and are virtually unaffected if we decide to skip a meal. The prefrontal cortex, on the other hand, feels the impact. Unfortunately, being relatively young in terms of human development, it's the runt of the litter come feeding time. Advanced research shows us why this matters. A 2007 article in the journal Personality and Social Psychology detailed nine separate studies on the impact of nutrition and willpower. In one set, researchers assigned tasks that did or did not involve willpower and measured blood sugar levels before and after each task. Participants who exercised willpower showed a marked, marked, marked drop, marked, marked drop in the levels of glucose in their bloodstream. Subsequent studies showed the impact of on performance when two groups completed one willpower-related task and then did another. Between tasks, one group was given a glass of Kool-Aid lemonade sweetened with real sugar, buzz, and the other was given a placebo lemonade with Splenda, buzz kill. The placebo group had roughly twice as many errors as a subsequent test as the sugar group. The studies concluded that willpower is a mental muscle that doesn't bounce back quickly. If you employ it for one task, there will be less power available for the next, unless you refuel. To do our best, we literally have to feed our minds, which gives new credence to the old saw, food for thought. Foods that elevate blood sugar evenly over long periods, like complex carbohydrates and proteins, become the fuel of choice for high achievers. Literal proof that you are what you eat. I learned that a long time ago. I noticed that once I really started minimizing a lot of my carbs, simple carbs especially, I had a lot more energy and I could make it through the day without the ups and downs. And when I cheat, I suffer the consequences. Back to the book, Default Judgment. One of the real challenges we have is that when our willpower is low, we tend to fall back on our default settings. Oh, that's so true. You know, you ever know you get tired and you just go back to your bad habit? You know, like, oh, I'm not going to eat that. Then you fucking eat that donut. Yeah, I'm highlighting that because it sounds like me. I don't know if that sounds like you. Maybe that's just me. Researchers Jonathan Livav of the Stanford School of Business in California, along with Leora Avon Peso, I don't even know how to say these names, and Shay Danziger of Ben Guren University in Negev, found a creative way to investigate this. They took a hard look at the impact of willpower on the Israeli parole system. The researchers analyzed 1,112 parole board hearings assigned to eight judges over a 10-month period, which incidentally amounted to 40% of Israel's total parole requests over that period. The pace is grueling. The judges hear arguments and take about six minutes to render a decision on 14 to 35 parole requests a day. And they get only two breaks, a morning snack, and a late lunch to rest and refuel. The impact of their schedule is a spectacular 
is as spectacular as it is surprising. In the mornings and after each break, parolees' chances of being released peak at 65% and then plunge to near zero by the end of each period. See figure eight. And figure eight is a chart, and on the vertical is a proportion favorable decisions in percent. And on the horizontal, it's um, time. It says morning break, afternoon break, um, end of the day. The results are most likely tied to the mental toll of repetitive decision-making. These are big decisions for the parolees and the public at large. High stakes in the assembly line rhythm demand intense focus throughout the day. As their energy is spent, judges mentally collapse into their default choice, which doesn't turn out so well for hopeful prisoners. The default decision for parole judges, no. When in doubt and willpower is low, the prisoner stays behind bars. And if you're not careful, your default settings may convict you too. When our willpower runs out, we all revert to our default settings. Man, so true, right? This begs the question, what are your default settings? If your willpower is dragging, Will you grab the bag of carrots or the bag of chips? Chips every time. Sorry. Will you be up for focusing on the work at hand or down for any distraction that drops in? When your most important work is done while your willpower wanes, default will define your level of achievement. Oh, When your most important work is done while your willpower wanes, default will define your level of achievement. Average is often the result. We don't want average, do we? We do not. We want greater than average. Give willpower the time of day. We lose our willpower not because we think about it, but because we don't. Without appreciating that it can come and go, we let it do exactly that. Without intentionally protecting it every day, we allow ourselves to go from a will and a way to no will and no way. If success is what we're after, this won't work. Think about it. There are degrees of willpower strength, like the battery indicator going from green to red. There is willpower and there is won't power. Most people bring won't power to their most important challenges without ever realizing that's what makes them so hard. When we don't think of resolve as a resource that gets used up, When we fail to reserve it for things that matter the most, we don't replenish it when it's low. We are probably setting ourselves up for the toughest possible path to success. So how will you put your willpower to work? You think, you think about it, pay attention to it, respect it. You make doing what matters most a priority when your willpower is its highest. In other words, you give it the time of day it deserves. I'm not trying to go too slow here. It's just. I don't know, is this this talking to you? This talks to me. It's speaking to me. And here's a little list here. What taxes your willpower? Implementing new behaviors, filtering distractions, resisting temptation, suppressing emotion, restraining aggression, suppressing impulses, taking tests, trying to impress others, Coping with fear, doing something you don't enjoy, selecting long-term over short-term rewards. Every day, without realizing it, we engage in all manner of activities that diminish our willpower. Willpower is depleted when we make decisions to focus our attention, suppress our feelings and impulses, or modify our behavior in pursuit of goals. 
It's like taking an ice pick and gouging a hole in our gas line. Before long, we have willpower leaking everywhere and none left to do our most important work. So like any other limited but vital resource, willpower must be managed. Man. We got to manage our willpower, man. I'm highlighting this. It's going to be a long review session at the end. Back to the book. When it comes to willpower, timing is everything. You will need your willpower at full strength to ensure that when you're doing the right thing, you don't let anything distract you or steer you away from it. Then you need enough willpower the rest of the day to either support or avoid sabotaging what you've done. That's all the willpower you need to be successful. So if you want to get the most out of your day, do the most important work. You're one thing early. Do it early. It's kind of like eat that frog. Back to the book. Before your willpower is drawn down. Since your self-control will be sapped throughout the day, use it when it's full strength on what matters most. Big ideas. Number one, don't spread your willpower too thin. On any given day, you have a limited supply of willpower. So decide what matters and reserve your willpower for it. Number two, monitor your fuel gauge. Full strength willpower requires a full tank. Never let what matters most be compromised simply because your brain was underfueled. Eat right and regularly. Number three, time your task. Do what matters most first each day when your willpower is strongest. Maximum strength willpower means maximum success. Don't fight your willpower. Build your days around how it works and let it do its part to build your life. Willpower may not be on will call, but when you use it first on what matters most, you can always count on it. All right. Chapter eight, a balanced life. Nothing ever achieves absolute balance. Nothing, no matter how imperceptible it might be. What appears to be a state of balance is something entirely different. An act of balancing. Viewed wistfully as a noun, balances live practically as a verb. Seen as something we ultimately attain, balance is actually something we constantly do. A balanced life is a myth, a misleading concept most accept as a worthy and attainable goal without ever truly, without ever stopping to truly consider it. I want you to consider it. I want you to challenge it. I want you to reject it. A balanced life is a lie. I've known that for a long time, man. You see, I don't, I don't even attempt balance. I swing one way, then I swing the other. Back to the book. The idea of balance is exactly that, an idea. In philosophy, the golden mean is the moderate middle between polar extremes, a concept used to describe a place between two positions that is more desirable than one state or the other. This is a grand idea, but not a very practical one. Idealistic, but not realistic. Balance doesn't exist. This is tough to conceive, much less believe, mainly because one of the most frequent laments is, I need more balance, a common mantra for what's missing in most lives. We hear about balance so much, we automatically assume it's exactly what we should be seeking. It's not. Purpose, meaning, significance, these are what make a successful life. Seek them and you will most certainly live your life out of balance, crisscrossing an invisible metal line as you pursue your priorities. The act of living a full life by giving time to what matters is a balancing act. Extraordinary results requires, require f focused attention and time. Time on one thing means time away from another. This makes balance impossible. The genesis of a myth. 
Historically, balancing our lives is a novel privilege to even consider. For thousands of years, work was life. If you didn't work, hunt game, harvest crops, or raise livestock, you didn't live long. But things changed. Jared Diamond's Pulitzer Prize winning Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fate of Human Societies, illustrates how farm-based societies that generated a surplus of food ultimately gave rise to professional specialization. 12,000 years ago, everybody on earth was a hunter-gatherer. Now almost all of us are farmers or or else fed by farmers. This freedom from having to forage or farm allowed people to become scholars and craftsmen. Some worked to put food on our tables while others built the tables. At first, most people worked accordingly to their needs and ambitions. According to their needs and ambitions. The blacksmith didn't have to stay at the forge until 5 p.m. He can go home when the horse's feet were shod. The 19th century industrialization saw for the first time large numbers working for someone else. The story became one of hard-driving bosses, year-round work schedules, and lighted factories that ignored dawn and dusk. Consequently, the 20th century witnessed the start of significant grassroots movements to protect workers and limit work hours. Still, the term work-life balance wasn't coined until the mid-1980s, when more than half of all married women joined the workforce. To paraphrase Ralph E. Gamori's preface in the book, 2005 book, Being Together, Working Apart, Dual career families in the work like work life balance. We went from a family unit with a breadwinner and a homemaker to one with two breadwinners and no homemaker. Anyone with a pulse knows who got stuck with the extra work in the beginning. However, by the nineties, work life balance had quickly become a common watchword for men too. A LexisNexis survey of the top 100 newspapers and magazines around the world shows a dramatic rise in the number of articles on the topic from 32 in the decades from 1986 to 1996 to a high of 1,674 articles in 2007 alone. It's probably not a coincidence that the ramp up of technology parallels the rise in the belief that something is missing in our lives. Infiltrated space and fewer boundaries will do that. Rooted in real-life challenges, the idea of work-life balance has clearly captured our minds and imagination. Middle mismanagement. The desire for balance makes sense. Enough time for everything and everything done in time. That's a weird sentence. Enough time for everything and everything done in time. It sounds so appealing that just thinking about it makes us feel serene and peaceful. This calm is so real that we just know it's the way life was meant to be, but it's not. If you think of balance as the middle, then out of balance is when you're away from it. Get too far away from the middle and you're living at the extremes. The problem with living in the middle is that it prevents you from making extraordinary time commitments to anything. If your effort to attend to all things, everything gets shortchanged and nothing gets its due. Sometimes this can be okay and sometimes not. Knowing when to pursue the middle and when to pursue the extremes is in essence the true beginning of wisdom. Extraordinary results are achieved by this negotiation with your time. The reason we shouldn't pursue balance is that the magic never happens in the middle. The magic happens at the extremes. It does, doesn't it, right? Because the middle is where all the boring shit and everybody else fucking does, right? Uh, We don't want what everybody else wants. We don't want their results. Their results suck. Back to the book. The dilemma is that chasing the extremes presents real challenges. 
We naturally understand that success lies at the outer edges, but we don't know how to manage our lives while we're out there. When we work too long, eventually our personal life suffers. Falling prey to the belief that long hours are virtuous, we unfairly blame work when we say I have no life. Often it's just the opposite. Even if our work life doesn't interfere, our personal life is so full of have-tos that we again reach the same defeated conclusion, I have no life. And sometimes we get hit from both sides. Some of us face so many personal and professional demands that everything suffers. Breakdown imminent, we once again declare, I have no life. That sounds familiar. Not not the last three years, but I remember. Let's go back to like 2008 through 2010. Back to the book. Just like playing in the middle, playing to the extremes is the kind of middle manage, mismanagement that plays out all the time. Time waits for no one. My wife once told me the story of a friend of hers. The friend's mother was a school teacher and her father was a farmer. They had scrimped, saved, and done with less their entire lives in anticipation of retirement and travel. The woman fondly remembered the regular shopping trips she and her mother would take to the local fabric store when they would pick out some fabric and patterns. The mother explained that when she retired, these would be her travel clothes. She never got to her retirement years. In her final year of teaching, she developed cancer and later died. The father never felt good about spending the money they saved, believing that it was their money, and now she wasn't there to share it with them. When he passed away and my wife's friend went to clean out her parents' home, she discovered a closet full of fabric and dress patterns. The father had never cleaned it out. He couldn't. That's some sad shit right there. It represented too much. It was as if its contents were so full of unfulfilled promises that they were too heavy to lift. Time waits for no one. Push something to an extreme and postpone it can become permanent. Time waits for no one. Push something to an extreme and postponement can become permanent. I'm going to highlight that. I don't sound like a crazy man. Actually, no, I don't give a shit. Back to the book. I once knew a highly successful businessman who had worked long days and weekends for most of his life, sincere in his belief that he was doing it all for his family. Someday when he was done, they would all enjoy the fruits of his labor, spend time together, travel, and do all the things they'd never done. After giving many years to building his company, he had recently sold it and was open to discussing what he might do next. I asked him how he was doing, and he proudly proclaimed that he was fine. When I was building the business, I was never home and rarely saw my family. So now I'm with them on vacation, making up for lost time. You know how it is, right? Now that I have the money and the time, I'm getting those years back. Do you really think you can ever get back a child's bedtime story or birthday? Is a party for a five-year-old with imaginary pals the same as dinner with a teenager with high school friends? Is an adult attending a young child soccer game on par with attending a soccer game with an adult child? Do you think you can cut a deal with God that time stands still for you holding off on anything important until you're ready to participate again? When you gamble with your time, you may be placing a bet you can't cover. This is so true. None of us want to die young or early, right? But we get a heart attack, cancer, car accident. You don't know how much time you have. Even if you're sure you can win, be careful that you can live with what you lose. Toying with time will lead you down a rabbit hole with no way out. Believing this lie does its harm, does its harm by convincing you to do things you shouldn't and stop doing things you should. Middle, 
mismanagement can be one of those most destructive things you ever do. You can't ignore the inevitability of time. So if achieving balance is a lie, then what do you do? Counterbalance. Replace the word balance with counterbalance. Just uh, highlight um, counterbalance there real quick. I don't want to forget. Replace the word balance with counterbalance and what you experience makes sense. The things we presume to have balance are really just counterbalancing. The ballerina is a classic example. When the ballerina poses in point, she can appear weightless, floating on air, the very idea of balance and grace. A closer look would reveal her toe shoes vibrating rapidly, making minute adjustments for balance. Counterbalancing done well gives the illusion of balance. Counterbalancing, the long and short of it. When we say we're out of balance, we're usually referring to a sense that some priorities, things that matter to us, are being underserved or unmet. The problem is that when you focus on what is truly important, something will always be underserved. No matter how hard you try, there will always be things left undone at the end of your day, week, and or month, year, and life. Try to get them all, trying to get them all done is folly. When the things that matter most get done, you'll still be left with a sense of things being undone, a sense of imbalance. Leaving some things undone is a necessary trade-off for extraordinary results. But you can't leave everything undone, and that's where counterbalancing comes in. The idea of counterbalancing is that you never go so far that you can't find your way back or stay so long that there is nothing waiting for you when you return. This is so important that your life may hang in the balance. An 11-year study of nearly 7,100 British civil servants concluded that habitual long hours can be deadly. Researchers showed that individuals who worked more than 11 hours a day, a 55-plus hour work week, were 67% more likely to suffer from heart disease. Counterbalancing is not only about your sense of well-being, it's essential to to your being well. There are two types of counterbalancing, the balancing between work and personal life and the balancing within each. In the world of professional success, it's not about how much overtime you put in. The key ingredient is focused time over time. To to achieve an extraordinary result, you must choose what matters most and give it all the time it demands. This requires getting extremely out of balance in relation to all other work issues with only infrequent counterbalancing to address them. Yeah, it's kind of like you're sprinting, right? Doing sprints, wind sprints. You guys remember those? I'm highlighting right now. Back to the book. In your personal world, awareness is the essential ingredient. Awareness of your spirit and body. Awareness of your family and friends. Awareness of your personal needs. None of these can be sacrificed if you intend to have a life. So you can never forsake them for work or one for the other. You can move back and forth quickly between these and often even combine the activities around them, but you can't neglect any of them for long. Your personal life requires tight counterbalancing. Whether or not to go out of balance isn't really the question. The question is, do you go short or long? In your personal life, go short and avoid long periods when you're where you're out of balance. Going short lets you stay connected to all the things that matter most and move them along together. In your professional life, go long and make peace with the idea that the pursuit of extraordinary results may require you to be out of balance for long periods, like this podcast. 
Going long allows you to focus on what matters most, even at the expense of other lesser priorities, like trying to reach me on a Wednesday. In your personal life, nothing gets left behind. All At work, it's required. In his novel, Suzanne's Diary for Nicholas, James Patterson artfully highlights where our priorities lie in our personal and professional balancing act. Imagine life is a game in which you're a ju- you are juggling five balls. The balls are called work, family, health, friends, and integrity. And you're keeping all of them in the air. But one day you finally come to understand that work is a rubber ball. If you drop it, it will bounce back. The other four balls, family, health, friends, integrity, are made of glass. If you drop one of these, it will be irrevocably scuffed, nicked, perhaps even shattered. Life is a balancing act. The question of balance is really a question of priority. When you change your language from balancing to prioritizing, you see your choices more clearly and open the door to changing your destiny. Extraordinary results demand that you set a priority and act on it. When you act on your priority, you'll automatically go out of balance, giving more time to one thing over another. The challenge then doesn't become one of not going out of balance, for in fact you must. The challenge becomes how long you stay on your priority. To be able to address your priorities outside of work, be clear about your most important work priority so you can get it done. Then go home and be clear about your priorities there so you can get back to work. When you're supposed to be working, work. And when you're supposed to be playing, play. It's a weird tightrope you're walking, but it's only when you get your priorities mixed up that things fall apart. Big ideas. Number one, think about two balancing buckets. Separate your work life and personal life into two distinct buckets. Not to compartmentalize them, just for counterbalancing. Each has its own counterbalancing goals and approaches. Number two, counterbalance your work budget. View work as an involve as view work as involving a skill or knowledge that must be mastered. This will cause you to give disproportionate time to your one thing and will throw the rest of your work day, week, month, and year continually out of bounds. Your work life is divided into two distinct areas what matters most and everything else. Hmm. Maybe we should create a list of what matters most. And then by definition, everything else wouldn't, right? I'm going to highlight and give myself a note. Maybe you should do the same. Let's say um, this is on page 83 for following along. Your work life is divided into two distinct areas, what matters most and everything else. List of what matters most. Back to the book. You will have to take what matters to the extremes and be okay with what happens to the rest. Professional success requires it. Man, that could be hard to let go. Number three, counterbalance your personal life bucket. Acknowledge that your life actually has multiple areas and that each requires a minimum of attention for you to feel that you have a life. Drop any one and you will feel the effects. This requires constant awareness. You must never go too long or too far without counterbalancing them so that they all are active areas of your life. Your professional life requires it. Start leading a counterbalanced life. Let the things take precedence when they should and get the rest when you can. An extraordinary life is a counterbalancing act. I feel like I did a little bit of that better this year. All right, where are we at? We're at 51 minutes. All right, we'll keep going. Chapter nine, big is bad. 
the Big Bad Wolf, Big Bad John. From folk tales to folk songs, the suggestion that big and bad go together has been a common theme across history. So much that many think they're synonymous. They're not. Big can be bad and bad can be big, but they're not one and the same. They aren't inherently related. A big opportunity is better than a small one, but a small problem is better than a big one. Sometimes you want the biggest present under the tree and sometimes you want the smallest. Often a big laugh or a big cry is just what you need. And every so often, a small chuckle and a few tears will do the trick. Big and bad are no more tied together than small and good. Big is bad is a lie. It's quite possibly the worst lie of all. For if you fear big success, you'll either avoid it or sabotage your efforts to achieve it. Who's afraid of the big bad big? Place big and results in the same room and a lot of people balk or walk. Mention big with achievement and their first thoughts are hard, complicated, and time-consuming. Difficult to get there and complex once you do pretty much sums up their views. Overwhelming and intimidating is what they feel. For some reason, there is a fear that big success brings crushing pressure and stress. That the pursuit of it robs them of not only time with family and friends, but eventually their health. Uncertain of the right to achieve big or fearful of what might happen if they try and fall short, their head spins just thinking about it and they immediately doubt what they have. They immediately doubt they have a head for heights. All of this reinforces a dis ease with the very idea of big. To invent a word, call it megaphobia, the irrational fear of big. When we connect big with bad, we trigger shrinking thinking. Lowering our trajectory feels safe. Staying where we are feels prudent. But the opposite is true. When big is believed to be bad, small thinking rules the day and big never sees the light of it. Flat's wrong. How many ships didn't sail because of the belief that the earth was flat? How much progress was impeded because man wasn't supposed to breathe underwater, fly through the air, or venture into outer space? Historically, we've done a remarkably poor job of estimating our limits. The good news is that science isn't about guessing, but rather the art of progressing. Not technically true, but whatever. Um, as so is your life. None of us know our limits. Borders and boundaries may be clear on a map, but when we apply them to our lives, the lines aren't so apparent. I was once asked if I thought thinking big was realistic. I paused to reflect on this and said, let me ask you a question first. Do you know what your limits are? No was the reply. So I said that it seemed the question was irrelevant. No one knows their ultimate ceiling for achievement, so worrying about it is a waste of time. Ooh. That's savage as fuck, Gary Keller. No one knows their ultimate ceiling for achievement. So worrying about it is a waste of time. Because I guess you'll find it if you get after it, huh? Back to the book. Starting to get a little worked up here. What if someone told you you could never achieve above a certain level? That you were required to pick an upper limit, which you could never exceed. What would you pick? A low one or a high one? I think we know the answer. Put in this situation, we should all do the same thing. Go big. Why? Because you wouldn't want to limit yourself. When you allow yourself to accept the big, that big is about who you can become, you look at it differently. In this context, big is a placeholder for when you might call what you might call a leap of possibility. It's the office intern visualizing the boardroom or a penniless immigrant imagining a business revolution. 
It's about bold ideas that might threaten your comfort zones, but simultaneously reflect your greatest opportunities. Believing in big frees you to ask different questions, follow different paths, and try new things. This opens the door to possibilities that until now only lived inside you. Sabir Bahita arrived in America with only $250 in his pocket, but he wasn't alone. Sabir came with big plans and the belief that he can grow a business faster than any business in history, and he did. He created Hotmail. Microsoft, a witness to Hotmail's meteoric rise, eventually bought it for $400 million. According to his mentor, Farooq Arjani, Sabir's success was directly related to his ability to think big. We set Sabir apart from hundreds of entrepreneurs I've met. What set uh, Sabir apart from hundreds of entrepreneurs I met is the gargantuan size of his dream. Even before he had a product, before he had any money behind him, he was completely convinced that he was going to build a major company that would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He had an unrelenting conviction that he was not just going to build a round-the-mill Silicon Valley company, but over time, I realized, by golly, he was probably going to pull it off. As of 2011, Hotmail ranked as one of the world's most successful web service, webmail service providers in the world with more than 360 million active users. Going big. Thinking big is essential to extraordinary results. Success requires actions and action or requires action and action requires thought. But here's the catch. The only actions that become springboards to succeeding big are those informed by big thinking to begin with. Make this connection and the importance of how big you think begins to sink in. All right, I need to read that again. I don't know about you. I don't know if I read it right. Thinking big is essential to extraordinary results. Success requires action and action requires thought. But here's the catch. The only actions that become springboards to succeeding big are those informed by big thinking to begin with. Make this connection and the importance of how big you think begins to sink in. I still only think I'm like half getting that. I don't want to read it again and bore the crap out of you guys. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a little star next to it so I can read it again and again and again, make sure I get it back to the book. Everyone has the same amount of time and hard work is simply hard work. As a result, what you do and the time you work determines what you achieve. And since what you do is determined by what you think, how big you think becomes the launching pad for how high you achieve. Think of it this way. Every level of achievement requires its own combination of what you do, how you do it, and who you do it with. Ooh, That's a little, like a little outline, right? For putting together a business plan. Combination, what you do, how you do it, and who you do it with. The trouble is that the combination of what, how, and who that gets you to one level of success won't naturally evolve to a better combination that leads to the next level of success. Doing something one way doesn't always lay the foundation for doing something better, nor does a relationship with one person automatically set the stage for a more successful relationship with another. It's unfortunate, but these things don't build on each other. If you learn to do something one way and with one set of relationships, that may work fine until you want to achieve more. It's then that you'll discover you've created an artificial ceiling of achievement for yourself that may be too hard to break through. In effect, you've boxed yourself in when there is a simple way to avoid it. Think as big as you possibly can and base what you do, how you do it, 
and who you do it with on, on succeeding at that level. It just might take you more than your lifetime to run into the walls of a box this big, which I guess would be good. When people talk about reinventing their career or their business, small boxes are often the root cause. What you build today will either empower or restrict you tomorrow. What you build today, boy, how many times have you started with too small of an idea? What you build today will either empower or restrict you tomorrow. It will either serve as a platform for the next level of your success or as a box trapping you where you are. Hmm. Big gives you the best chance for extraordinary results today and tomorrow. When Arthur Guinness set up his first brewery, he signed a 9,000-year lease. When J.K. Rowling conceived Harry Potter, she thought big and envisioned seven years at Hogwarts before she penned the first chapter of the first of seven books. Before Sam Walton opened the first Walmart, he envisioned a business so big that he felt he needed to go ahead and set up his future estate plan to minimize inheritance taxes. By thinking big, long before he made it big, he was able to save his family and estimate 11 to $13 billion in estate taxes. Transferring the wealth of one of the greatest companies ever built as tax-free as possible requires thinking big from the beginning. Thinking big isn't just about business. Candice Leitner started Mothers Against Drunk Driving in 1980 after her daughter was killed in a hit-and-run accident by a drunk driver. Today, MAD, M-A-D-D, has saved more than 300,000 lives. As a six-year-old in 1998, Ryan Herjack was inspired by stories told by his teacher to help bring clean water to Africa. Today, his foundation, Ryan's Well, has improved conditions and and helped bring uh, safe water to over 750,000 people in 16 countries. Derek. Kayungo recognized both the waste and hidden value of getting new soap into hotels every day. So in 2009, he created the Global Soap Project, which has provided more than 250,000 bars of soap in 21 countries, helping combat child mortality by simply giving impoverished people the chance to wash their hands. Asking big questions can be daunting. Big goals can seem unattainable at first. Yet, how many times have you set out to do something that seemed like a real stretch at the time, only to discover it was much easier than you thought? Sometimes things are easier than we imagine. And truthfully, sometimes things are a lot harder. Yeah, I've done, I do both. I tend to think I could do more than I really can. And I, you know, then you got to dig in and get it done. Back to the book. That's when it's important to realize that on the journey to achieve big, you get bigger. Big requires growth, and by the time you arrive, you're big too. What seemed an insurmountable mountain from a distance is just a small hill when you arrive, at least in proportion to the person you've become. Your thinking, your skills, your relationships, your sense of what is big is or what is possible and what it takes to grow on the journey to big. As you experience big, you become big. The big deal. For more than four decades, Stanford psychologist Carol S. Dweck has studied the science of how our self-conceptions influence our actions. Her work offers great insight into why thinking big is such a big deal. Dweck's work with children revealed two mindless or mindsets in action, a growth mindset that generally thinks big and seeks growth, and a fixed mindset that places artificial limits and avoids failure. 
Growth-minded students, as she calls them, employ better learning strategies, experience less helplessness, exhibit more positive effort, and achieve more in the classroom than their fixed-minded peers. They are less likely to place limits on their lives and more likely to reach for their potential. Dweck points out that mindsets can and do change. Like any other habit, you set your mind to it until the right mindset becomes routine. When Scott Forstall started recruiting talent to his newly formed team, he warned that the top secret project would provide ample opportunities to make mistakes and struggle, but eventually we may do something that we'll remember for the rest of our lives. He gave this curious pitch to superstars across the country, but only took those who immediately jumped to the challenge. He was looking for growth-minded people, and he later shared with Dweck after reading her book. Why is this significant? While you're probably never, while you've probably never heard of Forstall, you've certainly heard of what his team created. Forstall was a senior vice president at Apple, and the team he formed created the iPhone. Could you make that battery a little better? I don't want those assholes blowing up your life. Big stands for greatness, extraordinary results. Pursue a big life, and you're pursuing the greatest life you can possibly live. To live great, you have to think big. You must be open to the possibility that your life and what you accomplish can become great. Achievement and abundance show up because they're the natural outcomes of doing the right thing with no limits attached. Don't fear big. Fear mediocrity. Fear waste. Fear the lack of living to your fullest. When we fear big, we either consciously or subconsciously work against it. We either run toward lesser outcomes and opportunities or we simply run away from the big ones. If courage isn't the absence of fear, but moving past it, then thinking big isn't the absence of doubts, but moving past them. Only living big will let you experience your true life and work potential. Big ideas. Number one, think big. Avoid incremental thinking that simply asks, what do I do next? This is at best a slow lane to success and at worst the off-ramp. Ask bigger questions. A good rule of thumb is to double down, double down everywhere in your life. If your goal is 10, ask the question, how can I reach 20? Set a goal so far above what you want that you'll be building a plan that practically guarantees your original goal. Number two, don't order from the menu. Apple's celebrated 1997 Think Different ad campaign featured icons like Ali, Dylan, Einstein, Hitchcock, Picasso, Gandhi, and others who saw things differently and who went on to transform the world we know. The point was they didn't choose from the available options. They imagined outcomes that no one else had. They ignored the menu and ordered their own creations. As the ad reminds us, people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Number three, act bold. Big thoughts go nowhere without bold action. Once you've asked a big question, pause to imagine what life looks like with the answer. If you still can't imagine it, go study other people who have achieved it. What are the models, systems, habits, and relationships of other people who have found the answer? As much as we'd like to believe we're all different, what consistently works for others will almost always work for us. I don't think this applies to drugs and horrors. All right, number four. Don't fear failure. It's as much a part of your journey. Man, this one, especially being raised by the jackals I was raised by. This one was hard for me to get over. I think I'm still trying to get over it. Number four, don't fear failure. 
It's as much a part of your journey to extraordinary results as success. Adopt a growth mindset and don't be afraid of where it can take you. Extraordinary results aren't built solely on extraordinary results. They're built on failure too. Oh, I'm underlining that. That should have been the quote I went with. Maybe I'll do that next time. Extraordinary results aren't built solely on extraordinary results. They're built on failure too. In fact, it would be accurate to say that we fail our way to success. When we fail, we stop, ask what we ask what we need to succeed, learn from our mistakes, and grow. Don't be afraid to fail. See it as part of your learning process and keep striving for your true potential. Don't let small thinking cut your life down to size. Think big, aim high, act bold, and see just how big you can blow up your life. All right, what are we at? One hour and eight minutes. How long is this next chapter? Yeah, let's do another. Let's do at least. Uh, let's do at least one more um, chapter. The truth, the simple path to productivity. Be careful how you interpret the world. It is like that. Unclenched. For many years, I suffered from trying to live the lies of success. I began my career assuming everything mattered equally, so in an effort to cram it all in, I attempted too much at once. Frustrated, I even began to doubt I had the discipline or will to achieve success at all. As my life continually fell out of balance, I started to consider that trying to live a big life might be a bad thing. When you try to live up to something that isn't possible, you can get pretty down. I was pretty down. In an attempt to make it all work, I began to bear down even harder. You might say that I started to clinch my way to success. I really did. I thought this must, this might be the way you went through life. With your jaw clenched, your, fence, your fist clenched, your stomach clenched, and your butt clenched. Leaning forward, breath held, and body taut, tight, and totally tense. Boy, say that 10 times fast. I just assumed that was the feeling of focus and intensity as I struggled to live with the lies. That approach actually worked, but it also put me in the hospital. I also began to think you had to talk like a success, walk like a success, and even dress for success. It wasn't me, but I was open to any way to make things work, so I took seriously the suggestion that you are supposed to project the way you want to be. That approach worked as well, but after a while, I simply got tired of playing success. I bought into getting up before the crack of dawn, getting revved up, playing inspirational theme songs, and getting going before anyone else. In fact, I became so full of this thinking that I would drive to the office while the rest of the city slept and then crash at my desk just to make sure that I beat everyone else to work. I started to accept the notion, and that's pretty crazy, it didn't even work. I started to accept the notion that maybe... This is what ambition and achievement looked like as I fought the good fight. I would hold staff meetings at 7.30 in the morning, and at 7.31, I would actually shut the door and lock out anyone who showed up late. I was going overboard, but I was beginning to believe this is the only way you could succeed and the way you pushed others to succeed as well. This approach also worked, but in the end, it also pushed me too hard, others too far, and my world over the edge. I was truly beginning to think that the secret to success was to get as tightly wound up as possible each morning, set myself on fire, and then open the door and fly throughout the day, unwinding on the world until I literally burnt out. 
And what did all this get me? It got me success and it got me sick. Eventually it got me sick of success. So what did I do? I ditched the lies and went into the went the opposite direction. I joined Overachievers Anonymous and went anti-establishment on the success tactics that supposedly built success. First off, I got unclenched. I actually started listening to my body, slowed down, and chilled out. Next, I started wearing t-shirts and jeans to work and defied anyone to make a comment. I dropped the language and the attitude and went back to just being me. I had breakfast with my family. I got in shape physically and spiritually and stayed there. And last, I started doing less. Yes, intentionally, purposefully less. I was looser than ever, way laid back for me and breathing. I challenged the axioms of success and guess what? I became more successful than I ever dreamed possible and felt better than I ever felt in my life. That sounds pretty good. Here's what I found out. We overthink, overplan, overanalyze our careers, our businesses, and our lives that long hours are are neither virtuous nor healthy and that we usually succeed in spite of most of what we do, not because of it. I discovered that we can't manage time and that the key to success isn't in all the things we do, but in the handful of things we do well. I learned that success comes down to this, being appropriate in the moments of your life. You can honestly say, if you can honestly say, this is where I'm meant to be right now, doing exactly what I'm doing, then all the amazing possibilities for your life become possible. Most of all, I learned that the one thing is the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. All right, we're going to do one more chapter. Chapter 10, the focusing question. There's a little quote in the corner. There is an art to clearing away the clutter and focusing on what matters most. It is simple and it is transferable. It just requires the courage to take a different approach. George Anders. On June 23rd, 1885, in the town of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Andrew Carnegie addressed the students of Curie Commercial College. At the height of his business success, the Carnegie Steel Company was the largest and most profitable industrial enterprise in the world. Carnegie would later become the second richest man in history after John D. Rockefeller. In Carnegie's talk entitled The Road to Business Success, he discussed his life as a successful business person and gave this advice. And here's the prime condition of success, the great secret. Concentrate your energy, thought, and capital exclusively upon the business in which you are engaged. Having begun on one line, resolve to fight it out on that line. To lead in it, adopt every improvement, have the best machinery, and know the most about it. The concerns which fail are those which have scattered their capital, which means they have scattered their brains also. They have investments in this or that or others here, there, everywhere. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's all wrong. I would tell you put all your eggs in one basket and then watch that basket. Look around you and take notice. Men who do that do not often fail. It is easy to watch and carry one basket. It is trying to carry too many baskets that breaks most eggs in this country. It is trying to carry too many many baskets that breaks most eggs in this country. So how do you know which basket to pick? The focusing question. Mark Twain agreed with Carnegie and described it this way. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. The secret of getting started is breaking your complex, overwhelming tasks into small, manageable tasks and then starting on the first one. Standard operating procedures. Yep. What do I do? Why? So how do you know what the first one should be? The focusing question. 
Did you ever notice that both of these great men considered their advice a secret? I don't think it's so much a secret as something people know but don't give proper weight or importance. Most people are familiar with the Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begin began with a single step, must begin with a single step. They just never stop to fully appreciate that if this is true, then the wrong first step begins a journey that could end as far as 2,000 miles from where they want to be. The focusing question keeps your first step from being a misstep. Life is a question. You may be asking, why focus on a question when what we really crave is an answer? It's simple. Answers come from questions, and the quality of any answer is directly determined by the quality of the question. Ask the wrong question, get the wrong answer. Ask the right question, get the right answer. Ask the most powerful question possible, and the the answer can be life-altering. Voltaire once wrote, judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. Sir Francis Bacon added, a prudent question is one half of wisdom. Indira Gandhi concluded that the power to question is the basis of all human progress. Great questions are clearly the quickest path to great answers. Every discoverer and inventor begins his quest with a transformative question. The scientific method asks questions of the universe and hypothesis form. The more than 2,000-year-old Socratic method, teaching through questions, is still embraced by educators from the heights of Harvard Law School to the local kindergarten class. Questions engage our critical thinking. Research shows that asking questions improves learning and performance by as much as 150%. In the end, it's hard to argue with author Nancy Williard, who wrote, Sometimes questions are more important than answers. I first became aware of the power of questions as a young man. I read a poem that affected me profoundly, and I carried it with me ever since. My Wage by J.B. Rittenhouse. I bargained with life for a penny, and life would pay no more. However, I begged an evening when I counted my scanty store. For life is just an employer. He gives you what you ask. But once you have set the wages, why, you must bear the task. I worked for a menial's hire only to learn dismayed, that any that any wage I asked of life, life would have willingly paid. The last two lines deserve repeating. Any wage I asked of life, life would have willingly paid. One of the most important and one of the most empowering moments of my life came when I realized that life is a question and how we live it is our answer. Let me read that again because I kind of butchered that sentence. One of the most empowering moments in my life came when I realized that life is a question and how we live is our answer. I'm going to highlight that too. I'm a little tired, so I think I'm going to wrap up. You know, when you start making um, too many mistakes, it's time to time to get to the end. How we phrase the questions we ask ourselves determines the answers that eventually become our life. The challenge is that the right question isn't always so obvious. Most things we don't, most things we want don't come with a roadmap or a set of instructions, so it can be difficult to frame the right question. Clarity must come from us. It seems we must envision our own journeys, make our own maps, and create our own compasses. To get the answers we seek, we have to invent the right questions, and we're left to devise our own. 
So how do you do this? How do you come up with common questions that take you to uncommon answers or uncommon questions take you to uncommon answers? You ask one question, the focusing question. Anyone who dreams of an uncommon life eventually discovers there is no choice but to seek an uncommon approach to living it. The focusing question is that uncommon approach. In a world of no instructions, it becomes the simple formula for finding exceptional answers that lead to extraordinary results. What's the one thing I can do such by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? And that is the focusing question. I need some more coffee. The focusing question is so deceptively simple that its power is easily dismissed by anyone who doesn't closely examine it. But that would be a mistake. The focusing question can lead you to not only to answer not only the big picture questions, where am I going? What target should I aim for? But also small focus ones as well. What must I do right now to be on the path of getting the big picture? Where's the bullseye? It tells you not only what your basket should be, but also the first step toward getting it. It shows you how big your life can be and just how small you must go to get there. It's a map for a big picture and a compass for your, for your smallest next move. Extraordinary results are rare happenstance. They come from the choices we make and the actions we take. Our, no, extraordinary results are rarely happenstance. They come from the choices we make and the actions we take. Meaning it just doesn't happen. We got to do it, man. That's what that sentence means. The focusing question always aims you at the absolute best of both by forcing you to do what is essential to success, make a decision. But not just any decision, it drives you to make the best decision. It ignores what is doable and drills down to what is necessary to what matters. It leads you to the first domino. To stay on track for the best possible day, month, year, or career, you must keep asking the focusing question. Ask it again and again, and it forces you to line up tasks in their leveled, levered order of importance. Then, each time you ask it, you see your next priority. The power of this approach is that you're setting yourself up to accomplish one task on top of another. When you do the right task first, you also build the right mindset first, the right skill first, and the right relationship first. Powered by the focusing question, your actions become a natural progression of building one right thing on top of the previous right thing. When this happens, you're in position to experience the power of the domino effect. Anatomy of the question. The focusing question collapses all possible questions into one. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier. And it's broken into three parts. Part one, what's the one thing I can do? This spark, this sparks focused action. What's the one thing tells you that the answer will be one thing versus many. It forces you towards something specific. It tells you right up front that although you may consider many options, you need to take this seriously before you don't get two, three, four, or more. You can't hedge your bet. You're allowed to pick one thing and one thing only. The last phrase, can do, is an embedded command directing you to take action that is possible. People often want to change this to should do, could do, would do, but those choices all miss the point. There are many things we should, could, or would do, but never do. Action you can do beats intention every time. 
Here, here. Just do shit, man. Part two, such that by doing it, this tells you there is a criterion your answer must meet. It's a bridge between just doing something and doing something for a specific purpose. Such that by doing it lets you know you're going to have to dig deep because what you because when you do this one thing, something else is going to happen. Part three. Everything else will be easier or unnecessary. Archimedes said, give me a lever long enough and I could move the world. And that's exactly what this last part tells you to find. Everything else will be easier or unnecessary is the ultimate leverage test. It tells you when you found the first domino. It says when you do this, this one thing, everything else you could do to accomplish your goal will now be either doable with less effort or no longer even necessary. Most people struggle to comprehend how many things don't need to be done. If they would just start by doing the right thing, most people struggle to comprehend how many things don't need to be done if they would just start by doing the right thing. In effect, this qualifier seeks to declutter your life by asking you to put on blinders. This elevates the answer's potential to change your life by doing the leveraged thing and avoiding distractions. The focusing question asks you to find the first domino and focus on it exclusively until you knock it over. Once you've done that, you'll discover a line of dominoes behind it, either ready to fall or already down. Big ideas. Number one, great questions are the path to great answers. The focusing question is a great question designed to find a great answer. It will help you find the first domino for your job, your business, or any other area in which you want to achieve extraordinary results. Number two, the focusing question is a double-duty question. It comes in two forms, big picture and small focus. One is about finding the right direction in life, and the other is about finding the right action. Number three, the big picture question, what's my one thing? Use it to develop a vision for your life and the direction for your career or company. It is your strategic compass. It always works when considering what you want to master, what you want to give others and your community, and how you want to be remembered. It keeps your relationship with friends, family, and colleagues in perspective and your daily actions on track. Number four, the small focus question. What's my one thing right now? Use this when you first wake up and throughout the day. It keeps you focused on your most important work and whenever you need it, helps you find the levered action Um, or first domino in any activity. The small focus question prepares you for the most productive work week possible. It's effective in your personal life too, keeping you attentive to your most important immediate needs as well as those of the most important people in your life. Extraordinary results come from asking the focusing question. It's how you'll plot your course through life and business and how you'll make the best progress on your most important work. Whether you seek answers, big or small, asking the focusing question is the ultimate success habit for your life. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up. So we're ending on page 111, which means... Which means... um, Next week, we'll be starting in chapter 11, the success habit on page 112 and we're going to go back and do a little um, review that's what we're going to do all right so i'm on um i'm in chapter six and i'm on page 55 
And um, here I have highlighted, in fact, you can become successful with less discipline than you think for one simple reason. Success is about doing the right thing, not about doing everything right. You don't know how we end up doing that. I, I, I catch myself doing that all the time. Here, I need to drink water real quick. We don't need to do everything right, right? Like, how well do you have to fold the laundry? Any other shit? That, that's obviously a benign and, and petty um, response to that. But um, a lot of stuff in business isn't isn't even worth doing. You know, so you gotta you gotta ignore a lot of stuff. And then here, what else I have highlighted? When you do the right thing, it can liberate you from having to monitor everything. <sighs> that that must feel great. Because then, you, if you do the right thing, you just kind of it sets everything else up for success. I have a hard time with that. I think I got to work on that. I don't know. What do you think? You got to work on that. Um, no one actually has a discipline to acquire more than one powerful new habit at a time. Man, this is like if you try and do too many things at once. Like I'm gonna change my entire life tomorrow. When really, you just need to start doing one thing right now. I totally embrace that now, but man, I have multiple times tried to do it wrong. I still feel the urge to do everything. I'm like, I'm going to go change everything tomorrow or right now or whatever. You just can't change everything. You got to do one thing. If you are what you repeatedly do, then achievement isn't an action you take, but a habit you forge into your life. I like the idea of forging habits. And so that's why I uh, read that one. So. Now we're in chapter seven. My initial thought was, what's wrong with me? Was I a loser? Apparently so. No. This is in response to what he's talking about with willpower and how we use it up. It just means our willpower is gone. It's a, it's a renewable resource, but we use it and deplete it. We got to rest and get it back. Man, it doesn't make us a loser, right? We just got to prioritize our life so we can use it on the right things. We act as though our supply of willpower were endless. It is not. Like right now, I'm definitely towards the end of my willpower. <laughs> page number 60, page 68. One of the real challenges we have is that when our willpower is low, we tend to fall back on our default settings. Yeah, it's what's comfortable, right? So whenever when the shit hits the fan and when everything is going wrong, that's, you know, whatever dysfunctional or bad habits or whatever else the ice cream, the cigarette, the YouTube videos, the Facebook, the texting, the whatever, whatever it is keeping you from, you know, your, what you actually want to happen, whatever you fall back on going home early, tying yourself up in mindless, mind numbing, pedantic tasks, you know, when your most important work is done while your willpower wanes, default will define your level of achievement and average is often a result. So if we don't take the time to do this, man, we're going to get shitty results. We don't want that. At least I don't. I want great results. Page 70, you make doing what matters most a priority when your willpower is its highest. In other words, you give it the time of day it deserves. Yeah, like gas tank. I like the the analogy they gave with the tax, uh, the the gas tank. So, like many other, like any other limited but vital resource, willpower must be managed. 
Got to fill the tank up. Got to watch when it's getting low. Got to take breaks. Got to got to do all sorts of things. Got to make sure we uh, spend our time doing it early. Use it when it's important. So if you want to get the most out of your day, do your most important work, your one thing early before your willpower is drawn down. That's for sure, for sure. I think um, Brian Tracy in a book, Eat That Frog, the same thing, kind of like what is the most important thing? I think his focus is like what's the most important thing in your business. I don't know. I find it very um, similar in in that uh, regard. And I'm on page 76. The reason we shouldn't pursue balance is that the magic never happens in the middle. Magic happens at the extremes. Yeah. So this is when he's talking about um, balancing, like not, so just it's, it's a verb, you know, not a noun. It's not a place. You can't point to it. Shit ain't on a map. It's something you got to do, you know. Time waits for no one. Push something to an extreme and postponement can become permanent. Yeah, you wait around too long to, um, oh, my life, I'm just going to do it better. I'm going to wait. I'm just tomorrow, you know, wait till I do this, and then I'll do it. I, I bump into these people, too, at Renegade Detroit Investors and all that. And um, it sounds cheesy, but wouldn't now be the time? Why not now? I can't think of a single reason why now wouldn't be the time. Or now. Or why are you waiting? When you gamble with your time, you may be placing a bet you can't cover. Even if you're sure you can win, be careful you can live with what you lose. Yeah, we don't know, man. We don't know how much time we have. Do we? We pretend we know. In fact, most people go through life thinking they're going to fucking live forever. Guess what? You get to the end of this shit and you die and there ain't no redo. There ain't no repeat. You don't get, oh, you know what? I'll go back and do it better. No, this is it. New trial run. One shot at this. To achieve an extraordinary result, you must choose what matters most and give it all the time it demands. This requires getting extremely out of balance in relation to all other work issues with only infrequent counterbalancing to address them. Yeah, you got to focus, man. So it's kind of like, um, I think we talked last week too in here, we talk about Pareto's law, the 80-20, which is, could also be 90-10, 85-15, whatever. There's going to be some things that disproportionately weigh, you know, kind of like waking up early or prospecting or just some things are way more important and achieve most of your results. In fact, if you want to hire out the shit, you should focus on your 20, 10 or 20% and um, hire out and leverage out the other 80%, right? That sounds nice. Your work life is divided into two distinct areas. What matters most and everything else. And here I'm going to give myself a little homework list of what matters most. So I think you should do that too. I don't think I'm going to share it. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. And you certainly don't have to, but your work life is divided into two distinct areas. What matters most and everything else. What matters most? That's a good question. It's an excellent question. What matters most? Um, in your business, no one knows their ultimate ceiling for achievement. So worrying about it is a waste of time. I love that. I'm going to go write that on my board. How much time do you spend worrying about whether you can or who, you know, just instead of just trying, instead of just going out there and doing it, who knows? Thinking big is essential to extraordinary results. Success requires action and action requires thought. 
But here's the catch. The only actions that become springboards to succeeding big are those informed by thinking big to begin with. Make this connection and the importance of how big you think begins to sink in. Got to start big to be big, right? I think that's what he's saying, or at least that's what I read. Every level of achievement requires its own combination of what you do, how you do it, and who you do it with. And I kind of like how he breaks that out, right? A lot of it. What you build today will either empower or restrict you tomorrow. And here he's talking about thinking big. If you think too small and you hit it, then what? You could actually ruin the whole damn thing, couldn't you? Bust it through. Wreck the whole thing on the way out. And of course, every opportunity I get to highlight something like this, I do it. Don't fear failure. It's as much a part of your journey to extraordinary results as success. Adopt a growth mindset and don't be afraid of where it can take you. Extraordinary results are, aren't built solely on extraordinary results. They're built on failure too. Yeah. I used to think failure so personally, like I did it to like, like I did it, like I gave it agency, you know, when really you just, you made a mistake, you need to, to fix it or move on, right? Built on failure too. You can't have success without it. The dichotomy, you need both. So I always like to emphasize, um, fail small and fail fast. That's my, um, which my new policy instead of doing what I did before, which is just fucking fail slow and miserably, right? That doesn't get you anywhere. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. The secret to getting started is breaking your complex, overwhelming tasks into small, manageable tasks and then starting on the first one. Start and start with the end in mind. Break it down to something you can chew on, right? What's the one thing that we're talking about? The one thing? One of the most empowering moments of my life came when I realized that life is a question and how we live it is our answer. How we phrase the questions we ask ourselves determines the answers that eventually become our life. I think you can maybe oversimplify this a little bit, or at least a part of it. It's like, let's say one third in, you know, junk in, junk out, crap in, crap out, shit in, shit out, you know? I don't know if that makes any sense to you. And then, of course, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, Everything else will be easier or unnecessary. And I'm still on, for me, standard operating procedures, right? I think that's still, I need to leverage. I need to leverage my minions. And to do that, I cannot be the bottleneck keeping everybody from doing or achieving their goals and the things they want to do, right? Makes you think, like, what, what else are you bottlenecking your success on? Are you standing in your own way by not getting out of the way? You know what I'm saying? How often do we do that? I feel like I do that a lot. And I'm doing it right now. So I need to work on my standard operating procedures. So again, we ended on chapter 10. Page 111. So next week, we're going to start on chapter 11 for those following along on page 112 of The One Thing by Gary Keller. What do you guys think of this? It's helping me. I'm just not sure it's, is it helping you? Is it helping you? Do you find this helpful? 
I need a little bit of break and I need to refocus on my life. And you know what? I hate to use the new year, but there's, you know, we're coming up on the new year. I don't like to start on the first. I like to start before, um, for a lot of reasons, I think, but, um, this is, this is certainly one of them. So let me know if, um, this is helping you out guys. So I am, it's helping me out. So if you haven't already hook a brother up, man, rate and review on iTunes, please. It's one of the only ways we can grow the podcast. That matters a lot. Rate and review on iTunes matters a lot. What also matters, and a ton of you are doing it, so thank you, are sharing the podcast. If you like the podcast, don't do it if you don't, but if you like the podcast, consider sharing every episode. Go post it on Facebook. Tweet it out. Put a link in your profile on uh, on Instagram. You know, Snap it. Get on the Snapchats. I don't know how to use that shit. Somebody's going to help me with that. But get on the Snapchats and snap it, right? Push it out there. Um, share it. It's a free podcast. And if I'm going to keep doing this, I need to grow the podcast, right? So the goal is 5,000 weekly listeners. And we're about um, five months in on this goal. And we're at about 850 weekly listeners. So we have a ways to go. I would appreciate all of your help. And for those doing it, thank you. I really do appreciate it. And if you could share it from the Facebook page, um, Renegade Detroit or uh, Detroit Investment Club, facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club, mostly so I can thank you because occasionally I catch you guys just sharing it, which is awesome. Do that. But if I don't see it, I, I, I can't thank you. And I guess it's not essential that I thank you. And if you do it and I don't see it, thank you. I really do care. So, and I really do appreciate it. Uh, it means a lot to me. So, all right, folks, um, if you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club or meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors. You can hit me up on Twitter and and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And you can always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment. To encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I do it every week. This is back to just starting, right? You got to start. How many times you got to listen to it to start? If you haven't started, start. Pick a goal. Pick a habit. Do something. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day to get you close to your goals, even if it's one step. And I do want to thank you for listening. I do really appreciate your attention. Um. Without you, there is no me and there is no podcast. And until the next one, crush it.